Greetings and salutations. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Keyboard Kimura, presented by One Note. I am Eastbound. Back for the first time in a little bit. It is Wednesday, August 16th. That means one question for every fight, UFC 292. But before we get into that, I just want to say thank you to everybody for bearing with me. Took the week off last week. Um, wasn't in a good, wasn't in a good headspace. I close every show talking about take care of yourselves, take care of one another, um, talking about people reaching out regularly and things like that. And so for me last week, I, I needed to follow my own advice. I needed to follow the things that I preach. I knew early in the week, um, after going through and doing the keyboard Kimura podcast on Monday and getting the conversation with up and out and rolling that I just wasn't in a good place mentally in terms of coming on here and going through that fight card. And for me, I don't want to put out content that my heart isn't in it. My energy isn't in it. And last week would have been one of those weeks where I was phoning it in, where I was just kind of sleepwalking through the stuff. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that to you folks who pay attention to this content and consume this content, which I greatly appreciate. I don't want to do that to the athletes that I talk about. I want to give them all of my energy, all of my focus, all of my time, put these shows together properly, put the energy in, put the research in, put the time in to build them. And so I knew that wasn't something I was capable of. I had the space for the bandwidth for last week. So I just pressed pause. I apologize to everybody for not coming out early in the week and saying, look, I'm going to take this week off. Um, cause I knew very early in the week that I was going to take the week off. Um, so I will in future, let you folks know, I appreciate the people that, that reached out just to check in and say, Hey, is everything all right? Missed, missed the content last week. Hope to see it this week. So thank you. Shout out to Zuzana fights, a big follower, a big fan. I really appreciate you a great deal. And, and that goes to everybody as well. But this fight card has helped bring the spirits back up. This event has helped get me geared up. One of the things that has really gotten me through a bunch of stuff lately is putting together pieces like the coach conversation, which is up now on UFC.com. And this week we did it a little different myself and Tyson Chartier from the New England cartel. It's just the two of us. It really is a conversation. It really is a back and forth. I'm a little more present in it for the first time ever. Um, it fits into sort of an idea I have. And we'll be pitching about changing up and building the show a little bit differently or building the, the piece, the series a little bit differently going forward. We'll see how that works out. But talking about these two main fights, these two championship fights, got me fired up. Going through, writing the fight-by-fight -fight preview later last week, got me feeling better, got me moving better. I enjoyed the fights on Saturday. I've got some family in town that it's been nice to see them and spend a little time with them to really pull me away from MMA for a couple of days, but now we're back and it's UFC 292 time. It is one question for every fight. Cannot wait to get into this. So let's just go. Aljamain Sterling versus Sean O'Malley. My question is, can Sean O'Malley prove himself? I don't mean that in the sense that Sean O'Malley is unproven. You go out and beat Piotr Jan. You go out and have a fight like that against Piotr Jan. I don't care how you scored that fight. You go out and have a fight like that against Piotr Jan regardless of how much he has struggled as of late, you've, you've proven yourself to a certain degree. There is no question that Sean O'Malley is a top five bantamweight at this point in time. The reason I ask, can he prove himself is that 
we are now at the next level. We are now at that next tier. I talked to Aljamain Sterling before this fight. And one of the things he said, the piece is up on UFC.com right now. And this, this bit of the conversation is in there. He was talking about sort of the, the stakes of this fight, the magnitude of this fight, right? Doesn't do necessarily a ton for him. As he put it, it helps him become more popular with the people that play Fortnite because his legacy is kind of established, right? Three straight successful championship defenses, most in bantamweight history, nine fight winning streak, longest in bantamweight history, 14 wins in the division, most in bantamweight history. Like it's getting real tough to want to be critical of Aljo and, and what his legacy is. And nothing really necessarily changes that much except adding on to those numbers if he beats Sean O'Malley on Saturday. But for O'Malley, this is very much like Islam Mahashev fighting Charles Oliveira. And that was a comparison Aljo made. I think it is absolutely apt. Islam went into that fight, hadn't beaten a top 10 guy, but was on a nice long winning streak. Some of that is no fault of his own, right? A bunch of short notice fights had to come together. Opponents fell out, things of that nature. And he always handled business. And he went out at UFC 280 and stormed through Charles, Charles Oliveira and validated all of the advanced billing, validated all of the hype. And we saw, okay, this guy is the capital R, capital D, real deal. That's what this feels like for O'Malley as well. And the reason I say, can he prove it, is something that Max Holloway said that Harry Powell pointed out to me when we were talking about this over the last couple of days as I was bringing up some of the stuff that I talked about Aljo with and, and just bouncing ideas off my guy. What he said that, you know, recounting what Max said is getting into that upper tier takes a certain amount. It is, it is a difficult task. But going from top three to being the best, being the champion is a whole nother ball game. And I think we all know that. I think we've all seen that, right? It's a very select group of people that have been UFC champions. There's a reason that is it, it is an exclusive group. And it's not, we're not seeing the title change hands every single time out because there is, and there are levels to this. And Saturday we get to find out if Sean O'Malley is on that elite 1%, less than 1% level as a mixed martial artist. He is undeniably popular. He is undeniably talented, undeniably skilled. But is he good enough? Is he talented enough? Is he capable of being the absolute best in this division? He gets the chance to face the best bantamweight of all time. In the eyes of many, in terms of the records in the UFC, Aljo is the best bantamweight of all time in UFC history. And O'Malley gets to go out and fight that guy. And he wins this fight. It doesn't necessarily make him the best. But all those questions, all those lingering thoughts and worries and, hey, what if maybe and does he have, that all goes out the window, especially if he goes out and wins in dynamic, impressive fashion. If Sean O'Malley goes out and like sniper fires Aljamain Sterling, puts him out. Aljo's only been knocked out once in his career, in his UFC career. And that was the Marlon Rice fight where he's dipping for a takedown and catches the knee in the side of the head and ends up dabbed out on the canvas. If Sean O'Malley puts him out, no more questions. This dude is for real, for real. And I can't wait to find out. Like, I can't wait. This is such a fascinating fight to me. I have so many questions in addition to this one going into this fight that, that I want to see 
that I'm waiting to, to get answered. I can't recommend the coach conversation series enough, especially the one for this week, because Tyson and I get into a bunch of these questions and a bunch of the like uncertainties with this fight. And for me as a fan, I don't need the beef. I don't need the back and forth. I don't need, you know, them having a face off at UFC 282 or 289, sorry, getting in each other's face and, and being all up in each other's grill. 288, 289 was out here getting in each. I don't need any of that. I need questions that are legitimate, fascinating questions to me about how does this fight play out stylistically? What do we see? Is O'Malley going to be able to defensively wrestle? Can he strip hands? Can he avoid getting taken down? If he does get taken down when he does get taken down, can he get back up? There's so much to this fight stylistically, technically, skill wise that intrigues me that I just can't wait for Saturday to get here. Sean O'Malley has a chance to validate all of that early hype to justify all of his own big talk about, I'm going to be the superstar. I am the champion. I am going to be the best in this division. We get to find out on Saturday. Like, this is it. This is, this is what we do, right? Everything for him has led to this. And there have been questions. There have been stumbles. There have been uncertainties. But if he goes out on Saturday and beats Aljamain Sterling to win the UFC bantamweight title, there's no more questions. Co-main event, strawweight championship fight, Zhang Wei Li versus Amanda Lemos. And my question is, can Lemos match Zhang's physicality? This was the thing that Tyson and I really, really stumbled over and, and kind of caught ourselves with as we were having our conversation about this fight. Because each of these women has a weird little tick in their resume that throws off the way you sort of think them through. Both are strong, powerful, physical fighters. They are both, as he put it, bullies. They go out there, they bully their opponents, force them into their fights, hurt them, outmuscle them. That's a wrap. Which then makes the fact that Zhang Weili got out-wrestled by Rose Nama Yunus and that Amanda Lemos got bullied and submitted in the first round by Jessica Andrade, just these weird little ticks that kind of throw a little bit of a question mark in your head. I'm more confident and more convinced of Zhang Weili's ability in terms of the physicality, in terms of five-round fights, in terms of dealing with all of the championship elements that come with this. For me, the thing that I want to see and the question that I have is can Lemos go out there and match some of that physicality? Because I think that's a differentiating point. I think we're going to find out very soon into the fight very early in this fight, I think we see Zhang Weili look to wrestle. And if Amanda Lemos can make it difficult, can deny the takedown, can dig under hooks, can hurt her coming in or land coming in, that changes the dynamic of this fight. That for me swings the nature of this fight. Now it doesn't mean that it swings it for good. And that's another piece of this that is so fascinating to me, but it swings it early. And it gives Amanda Lemos a huge confidence boost. And it forces Zhang Weili to either adapt in there and switch up the game plan. Or just take the, fine, I've got a five-round grind her approach. 
another piece of this, and we talked about it in, in the piece, which again is up on UFC.com. Please go check that out. This is Amanda Lemos's second five round main event. Her first one was the fight against Jessica Andrade, which lasted three minutes and change. Zhang Wei Li's been here a bunch. We've seen her go 25 minutes in a competitive back and forth, beat down, knock down, drag out fight with Joanna Janjacek a few years ago. We know she can do it. We know she can go through misery. She had a great fight against Rose Namajunas, the second fight, close fight, 25 minutes. She's good. We, I'm confident that she can do it. There's questions about Lamos. And if she can do it, if she can carry it through, it changes the nature of this fight. I think the assessment and, and my assessment, looking at it now, looking at it as I've prepped to get towards this fight, my base assessment has been it's going to be competitive early. And then I think Zhang Wei Li starts to pull away the later we get into the fight because I believe in her confidence, in her conditioning, excuse me. I believe in her wrestling. I believe in her physicality holding up because we've seen it, right? I have that tangible evidence. Amanda Lemos finishes at some point in the first couple rounds or she starts flagging a little bit and starts fading a little bit and gets into those fights like the Angela Hill fight where it gets really close. She does maintain some of that power. We saw sort of, for me, the differentiating factor in that fight with Hill that earns her the victory on my scorecard is that the power carries through into those later rounds and the shots she's landing are good shots. But that's in the third. Will she have any of that in the fourth and the fifth if we get there? This to me is another fascinating fight. It's a little bit of that same, not, not a lot for Zhang Weili to, to benefit from here. It's a good win. It's a successful title defense. It keeps you moving forward. But it's not one of those wins that changes her legacy. It's not one of those performances necessarily that is going to shift the way people think about her or speak about her or look at her within the context of the divisional's legacy, the division's legacy overall. But for Lemos, this is this is life-changing, right? This is a life-changing opportunity. And so I want to see if she is all the way up to the task on Saturday night. Middle fight on the main card, Ian Machado Gary versus Neil Magny. My question is how good will IMG look? I mean, this is this is a kid that coming into the year, I talked about him as one of my top prospects in the UFC on OSDB Sports. I think that holds true. But the assessment that I had coming in was that last year was sort of a accumulate experience year for him, right? Two decision wins, Gabe Green, Darian Weeks, took the rest of the year off, took the back half of the year off, welcomed his first child with his wife, and then set forth this year to start moving forward. And boy, oh boy, has he ever looked good. Rallied from getting knocked down in the first round of his fight against Song Kinan to get a third round stoppage win, and then went out and looked absolutely fabulous against Daniel Rodriguez. No, no notes on that fight. It was just a brilliant, beautiful performance. And that is the Ian Machado Gary that we all sort of thought and envisioned the best version or the growing version of him would be. After that fight, he called out Neil Magny, originally paired off with Jeff Neal, switches now to Magny as, as Jeff Neal has been forced to withdraw. And listen, whatever was said on social media the Ian Gary video of him finding out and his manager, whoever it was, questioning Jeff Neal. 
fuck right off with it, man. Jeff Neal nearly died two summers ago and was back in the octagon in December facing Stephen Thompson. So don't question that man's drive. Don't question that man's heart, that man's desire. Nobody that does this for a living is scared to fight anybody. They chose cage fighter as a profession. So miss me with that bullshit. But this fight still is a fight that becomes a real test and a real question for Ian Machado Gary. I do believe, and he will rightfully so, be the favorite in this fight. Neil Magny isn't quite the same guy that he was two, three years ago when he was the absolute litmus test, the, the entrance exam to the top five and to the top 10. But I tell you what, he's the kind of guy that if you're Ian Gary and you're feeling a little bit big and up in your chest and ah, this is easy, I'm going to run through this guy, he might make you not, not look so good. He might go out there and jab the face off you. He might make you chase him around the cage for 15 minutes and deal with some grappling and deal with some wrestling and some interactions that you haven't really had to deal with yet. This is the reason, and I talk about this all the time on this program, on this platform. This is the reason we have these fights. We need these tests. So far, Ian Machado Gary has been the A-side, really, of all of his matchups. He's been the guy that we expect to win. We expect him to have the skill to get through everybody that he's faced. And so far, passed with no real issues. Dropped once, fine, rallied, got a stoppage. Great. He's still supposed to beat Neil Magny. But this is the first real one for me where there's some wrinkles that we haven't seen yet. Neil Magny is going to look to wrestle. Neil Magny is going to look to grapple. It's going to be interesting to see what Ian Gary's takedown defense is like. What his get-up game is like if he does get put down. What he's able to do pummeling and, and circling off the fence where Neil Magny loves to be. It's still a dangerous fight. I want to see how good this kid can look because at 25... The nickname is the future, and he feels like the future, quite frankly. He feels right now and profiles right now to me as somebody that will be a championship contender in the next couple of years. I don't think there's any need to rush him, but I do think this fight on Saturday is going to give us a little bit of clarity in terms of how ready he is to start making and continue making that real push into the meat of the top 15 into the thick of the top 10, into some of those fights against some of those names that we all know that then start feeling like, okay, this is one where maybe I can't favor Ian Machado Gary. He's looked phenomenal thus far. Let's see how he looks on Saturday. Bantamweight fight, Marlon Chito Vera versus Pedro Munoz. My question is, will we see a more aggressive, more active Chito Vera? Last time out against Corey Sandhagen, his head coach, Jason Perillo got into him for the entire fight. The whole fight was spent asking him what's wrong. You got to go. You got to throw. You got to do more. Historically, Cheeto has been a guy that is able to get by on low output, lower output, and lower volume because he finds those big power shots. He finds those big blows, right? The Dominic Cruz fight, he's down in that fight and he lands the head kick to get the finish. The Rob Font fight, they go 25 minutes and the differentiating factor is the power that Cheeto's able to land with. Font outstrikes him by a vast margin, but Cheeto drops him a couple of times and a couple of key points to swing rounds in his favor and win that fight. 
That's his MO is just, I'm going to find those shots. Harry talked about it a lot. He's a guy that is at times too accepting of being on his back and trusting that he's going to be able to either do damage from bottom or get back up and find something at some point, right? The Frankie Edgar fight a couple of years ago is a great example of that. Edgar has success early and Cheeto just figures, look, I'm going to get this guy at some point. Once I find his chin, once we're done, that's how it played out. But it didn't play out that way against Corey Sandhagen. And I wonder if coming off a loss like that, where you're right on the cusp, right? If he wins that fight, it's not necessarily that he's next in line for a title fight because we have Sean O'Malley. We had the Henry Cejudo fight on deck still. Sandhagen fight took place in March. Aljo obviously fought in May and now is fighting in July. But it would have put him in that very small group on that very short list. Maybe to face Marab, maybe to face you know, the loser of this fight on Saturday in a title eliminator kind of deal. But he lost that fight. And he lost that fight, one, in part to Corey Sandhagen being a very, very good fighter that did all the right things. But two, to just not being active, just not throwing. And that's why Jason Perillo was up in his ass the whole time. Hey, man, you got to go. And so now that he's facing a guy in Pedro Munoz that is going to come out and stand in the pocket and look to trade with him, and bang home low kicks and fire off right hands and is willing to take shots in order to land shots, do we see a little bit more activity out of Cheeto? Because for me, that's the differentiating factor between him and the absolute elite in this division right now. He's got the power. He has the wherewithal. And if he ticked up that output a little, he can be right there with that whole group, unquestionably to me. But we got to see the, the uptick. We've got to see the output. Munoz is a perfect guy to maybe pull that out of him. If it's going to come out of him, it will be Saturday in Boston, but we got to see it. That's what's, that's why I love these things, right? The end of the day, you've got to get in there and show it. You've got to get in there and do it. You've got to go win the fight that gets you to a title fight that proves you're the real deal or that shows you can make those adjustments. Because if not, Pedro Munoz goes out and batters you a little bit. It's 15 minutes. That goes by quick. He's not a guy that's necessarily going to get put out. And so you're going to have to go. And we're going to see if Cheeto Vera can go a little bit more on Saturday. Middleweight fight, Chris Weidman versus Brad Tavares. My question is, what is Chris Weidman's legacy? Some folks may push back at that, wonder why I'm asking such a question, as he is the man that defeated Anderson Silva, stopped the Spiders undefeated run in the UFC broke his long-standing reign over the middleweight division, beat him twice, and it was an unbeaten run to get there. So, Chris Weidman, two quality title defenses after defeating Anderson Silva, unanimous decision over Lyoto Machida, stoppage win over Vitor Belfort, gets to 13-0. That segment, outstanding. That four-year run through UFC 187 is excellent. Six finishes in nine fights, short notice debut win over Alessio Sakara, short notice win over Damian Maya, where he cut a gang of weight to be able to make that fight and get that victory. The finish over Mark Munoz, the sneaky little elbow inside, still one of my favorite underrated finishes of all time in the octagon. But the problem is since he's two and six since lost the title to Luke Rockhold in a fight where it wasn't like, the spinning back kick is the thing we remember, but it got ugly after that. Two and six since the Windsor over Kelvin Gaslam in a fight where he got hurt 
an Amari Akhmadov. The losses are five stoppage losses and then the leg break. And so all of them have ended inside the distance, which is kind of scary. It's been kind of gnarly. And that's what makes it difficult for me to figure out where he fits. There's a line in high fidelity of, is it better to burn out or to fade away, right? How do you, how do you figure out someone's legacy like this? And we talked about it with Anderson Silva for the longest time, greatest of all time, but then he held on too long and he kept standing around and he kept hanging around and he kept fighting and the losses mounted. And at some point you can't just overlook the losses and say, yeah, but those don't count because the time before was great. And Anderson Silva slid down the list of all time greats. I think, I don't think there's many people that would argue that for a period unquestionable, but in totality, it changes. And that's where Weidman's at for me is for a period, unquestionable, undeniable, best middleweight on the planet. Those wins are great wins. That run is a great run, but it's been grisly since. And Saturday night, 39 years old, first fight in over two years, he gets a tough assignment against Brad Tavares. And how this one goes is going to tell me a lot about not only what Chris Weidman's future is in this sport, but how we're going to, <clears throat> excuse me, how we're going to remember Chris Weidman going forward. We're always going to have that moment. We're always going to have that win. And then the successful title defense, or yes, it's a leg break, but Chris Weidman checked that kick. They were working on it. It's not a fluke. It's not anything. You can only beat the guys that stand in front of you. And he beat Anderson Silva twice. But it's changed since then. And it's going to be interesting to see where we end up with Chris Weidman when his career wraps up. We stay in the middleweight division. Gregory Rodriguez versus Dennis Tiulian. And my question is, who gets finished here? And I don't mean that dismissively of either guy. But here's, here's the math. Gregory Rodriguez, 18 fights. Only four have gone to the scorecards. Dennis Tiulian, 18 fights. Only three have gone to the scorecards. 36 fights, seven times to the judges. More likely than not, somebody's getting finished. And I love that. There are times, and I say it regularly on these programs, there are times where you just need fights. And I don't, again, not dismissively, but not everything has to have huge stakes, has to have huge ramifications. Sometimes it can be to aggressive, attacking, dangerous fighters coming off first round stoppage losses that were supposed to fight earlier in the summer that got pushed back. Both guys are surely chomping at the bit to get in there and get back in the win column. And it's going to be entertaining. Guaranteed going to be entertaining. They are going to be swinging for the fences. They're going to be trying to take each other's head off. They're going to be looking to finish. We are going to get a good entertaining fight out of these two middleweights. I am certain of it. And I'm looking forward to it. I spoke to Robocop before this fight was originally supposed to take place. Talked about a bunch of the changes that he had made and things that were going on in his life and his career prior to that last loss. And now heading into this fight, I expect him to come out gunning and try to get this done early. I expect the same out of Dennis Hulian. We're going to get a good one. 36 fights have only been to the card seven times. If there is a under and a does not go the distance prop, and it's under, you know, maybe under minus 200. That may not be a bad bet. We may have to look at that one for the betting show on Friday. Lightweight division, the Ultimate Fighter 31 lightweight finale, Austin Hubbard versus Kurt Holabaugh. 
My question is how tough were these guys' earlier runs? I think there are times where we just sort of forget or, or don't even acknowledge how difficult it is to have success in the UFC. But these guys really, to me, illustrate how difficult it is. So Austin Hubbard in his first run went three and four. The losses are to Davi Hamosh, Mark Madsen in a very close fight, Joe Selecki and Vince Pichel. All of those guys are excellent fighters, right? Mark Madsen undefeated until he fought Grant Dawson very recently. Joe Selecki five and one in the UFC. Vince Pichel for a long time was just on that outskirts of the top 15. The only thing that kept him from getting into it and having a better run was health and activity. Kurt Holobaz had two stints in the UFC. He debuted against Steven Seiler, uh, coming out of strike force, lost that fight, had a little break back to the regional circuit. Then when he returned after winning uh, the first main event, so the, the final fight on the first episode of Dana, of the first season of Dana White's contender series, gets back into the UFC and he fights Haoni Barcelos, Shane Burgos, and Tiago Moises. He goes 0-3, but going 0-3 against those three dudes, I mean, what do you do? Like, they're both good fighters, but you see how tough it is to succeed at this level. Both have been very good since getting released and getting back into action. Both looked good on the Ultimate Fighter. Hubbard's fight with Roosevelt Roberts in the semifinals, not quite as good as his earlier performance because the two were friendly, because they had trained together. They both sort of knew what to expect and it became a little bit of a, a chess match, a little bit of a stalemate, but he got the job done. Kurt Holabaugh went out and beat the holy hell out of Jason Knight. Showed a, showed a great performance. His win over Lee Hammond, good opportunistic finish after getting beaten for most of that fight. I think this one is going to be tremendous. I think it's going to be real action pack. Holabaugh is going to come across the cage looking to get it done early. Austin Hubbard's going to have to go through some stuff to get his hand raised. It should be good. Both these dudes want to be back in the UFC and get an opportunity to show that they are better than their initial runs may otherwise convey. And so we should get a really good fight out of these two in the tough finale. I know people want to lament tough. I know people want to moan about it. Still the same and all of that stuff. It was a good season. It was entertaining. There wasn't any of the bullshit in the house that we, you know, came to initially love and then get sick of. There's none of that stuff. It's just good fights or good, good narrative to it all. The veterans versus the prospects. This should be a good fight for the finale at lightweight. As should the finale of Bantamweight, Brad Katona versus Cody Gibson. My question for it is, can Katona make history by winning tough twice? So he won season 27 at featherweight dating, defeating, excuse me, Jay Cunicello. He comes into the UFC, gets a win in his debut, then loses to Marab Dwalishvili and a close fight to Hunter Azure. He's 4-0 since, solid, grimy win over Timur Valiev to get to the finals. Katona is one of those guys to me that he's never going to be a fan favorite. It's just, he's not because he is a smothering focused tactical. It's just about getting the victory. And I understand that that doesn't endear him to fans. It doesn't even necessarily endear him to the promotion itself, but he's a very good fighter. Like he's a very good fighter. And so Cody Gibson is a tough out who has looked very good through his last bunch of fights. He looked very good in the house, beating Mando Gutierrez and beating Rico DiChulo. 
dealing with a knee injury in that fight against Deshulo. Tough kid. Again, fought good competition when he was in the UFC. One of the losses early, I think his debut loss was to Aljamain Sterling, who headlines this card and is the Bantamweight champion. There's a little bit of heat between these two. Cody was one of the only people that sort of just, everybody seemed to not like Brad Katona on the veteran team and then just generally kind of in the house because Brad made no bones about it. I'm on team Brad Katona. And so I'm going to do the things that help me win and get me to where I want to go. A bunch of people didn't like that. Cody Gibson was the only one that sort of stood up to him about it and pushed back against it right to his face. Like just said, like you're a diva. No one likes you. I'm the only one that'll say it. And so it'll be interesting to see these two face off again after a couple of months apart, after building a little bit of that tension between each other in the house. I think it should be a good fight. And I want to see if Katona can become the first two-time winner of the Ultimate Fighter. We move back to middleweight, Andre Petrosky versus Gerald Mearshart. My question is, will we get the grappling match we all want? So we've had a couple fights that could have been no-gi grappling matches inside the octagon over the last few months. None of them were. I hope this one is because I think Petrosky is underrated. GM3 is a proven, established, known commodity. And I just want to see it. Like one of these days, I want to see just a really great attack and defend approach and reversal. Like I just want to see that really great. And I know that that means I should just watch Nogi grappling. I should just watch BJJ competitions and I will get into it even more. But like, this is a good test for Andre Petrosky, who's 4-0 in the UFC, but hasn't really faced the best competition. He got a unanimous decision win last time out over Wellington Terman, who has since gone down to welterweight and has struggled and did struggle during his time at middleweight. GM3 is one of those guys that you let him hang around, you let him get to spots that he wants to get to, and it's night-night. Either hands, but more likely a choke of some kind. But he's also that guy that if you're better than him, you can get the better of him. And so we're going to find out about Andre Petrosky. I think Petrosky is very much the question mark here, is very much the let's see what we have in him in this fight, right? GM3 is the, the known established commodity in this one. This is about discovering if Petrosky is at this level and, and maybe how far, how much further he can go in the next 12 to 18 months. It should be a good fight. I just hope we get to see. I at least want like one good series on the ground of scrambles and escapes and attacks and defend and hunt for this and counter this. Like, just give me one, give me one and I'll be happy. Give me 15 minutes and I will be elated, but give me one and I will be a happy boy. Move to the flyweight division. Andrea Lee versus Natalia Silva. My question is how good is Natalia Silva? Winner of nine straight fights, 3-0 in the UFC, 26 years old. Back-to-back finishes after a unanimous decision win over Jasmine Jazdavicius in her UFC debut, which is a fight and a victory that has aged very well. At the time, I looked at it and went, well, I guess Jazz DeVicius isn't as good as I thought she was because she lost to this woman coming back off of two and a half years on the sidelines. As it turns out, Natalia Silva is very good. Jazz DeVicius is still very good. And that was one of those fights that just completely flew under the radar and a year later has aged quite nicely. Silva is fluid, confident, ambidextrous in her striking, in her attacks. She throws that lead leg high kick effortlessly 
which is very, very impressive, very interesting. But now she gets to step up. This is sort of that elevation. And I think because she fought Jazz first and then kind of, I don't want to say, then went backwards, right? Then went backwards and fought Teresa Bleda and then Victoria Leonardo. It feels like we've gone in reverse order and now this is a great big leap. But if we just shifted the way those fights came together, right? If she went Bleda, Leonardo, and then Jazz, then we're progressing the right way as, as Jasmine Jazdavisius is currently ranked number 15 in the flyweight division. Andrea Lee's a good step up. I don't care that she's five and five in the UFC. And I talked to her about this yesterday for a piece that'll be up on the UFC website at some point this week. I don't care that she's five and five. I know what the skills are, right? Last time out against Macy Barber, a good performance. She loses a split decision. It's one round on one scorecard that changes the outcome of that fight, that changes it from a win or a loss. And none of the performance has to change. So there are good things. I know what I am getting when I see Andrea Lee on the opposite side of the cage from Natalia Silva this weekend. We're going to find out about Silva's wrestling defense, her getup ability, how good she is maybe offensively on the ground or in the clinch. I think she's the goods. I think she gets a win here and moves into the top 15 and starts making a case for fights against top 10 opponents because she can point back to that win over Jazz Davisius, especially if Jazz goes out and beats Tracy Cortez in September. But we're going to have to see, right? This again, as I said earlier, this is why we have these fights. We get to see what happens. I may have ideas. We all may have these thoughts and ideas of how these things are going to play out and what it all means and how far somebody can go. But you got to step into that octagon and show it and prove it and earn it. Can't wait for this one. Karine Silva versus Marina Moros staying in the flyweight division. My question here is can Karine Silva keep it rolling? So I've been tremendously impressed with Silva so far. When she debuted against Pollyanna Botelho, I think my question going into that fight was, why is this on the main card? It was a main card fight. It was her debut. And I said at the time, and I think I was still writing them at that point. I don't think Harry had quite gotten in my ear yet about doing them as videos. I said at the time that it's clearly because she's a contender series graduate and they want to see right out of the gate, is this somebody that we can not necessarily build around, but is going to be worth showcasing. And she went out in that fight against Pollyanna Botelho, looked very good, hurt her on the feet, chased her to the ground after landing a big shot, kind of just followed through the big right hand and smothered her to the ground, like used her momentum to land on the ground, quickly locked up a Darce choke, got her out of there late in the first round. Last time out earlier this year against Ketlin Souza, she looked dominant. She, she showed elements that for me as somebody scouting fighters is a was a piece that I really want to see. So she just went out and played to her strength. Ketlin Souza, better striker, has her most success on the feet in the striking realm. So Silva just said, fine, I'm going to close this distance. I'm going to put you on the ground in the first 30 seconds. She started chasing that dar stroke. It wasn't there. She postured up to land some shots. Ketlin Souza left her, her knee in and exposed. And Silva just fell back on a knee bar and popped her knee. And you can see her knee pop if you go back and watch the replay. And it took 90 seconds and change, a little over 90 seconds. And it was terrific. It was a great performance. 2-0 in the UFC. Good winning streak overall. 29 years old. So right in that athletic prime. And now she gets to run it back with Marina Moros. These two fought nine years ago when they were both very young in their careers. Moros won by armbar in the first round. She is the more established, clearly, certainly, commodity in this fight. 
was on the cusp of the top 15 prior to her last fight against Jen Maya, where she got pieced up. This is a good litmus test to see where Silva's at, what her next 12 months, very similar to Natalia Silva, very similar to Gerald Mershart, truthfully, just that measuring stick fight, right? We know what Marina Morose is. We know what it takes to beat her. We know the level of fighter that she beats. And so we see. She's already got a win over Silva. Can Silva get it back, earn that measure of revenge? And can she really show that she too, like Natalia Silva, is somebody that we need to be paying close attention to in the bantamweight, sorry, the, the flyweight division going forward? I said bantamweight because before we get out of here, one more fight. I don't know officially that it's happening. I've seen reports, but I haven't heard anything officially from the UFC side of things. So we'll just lay it out here as the last one. I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to land on the fight card if and when it does. But Mario Batista versus Damone Blackshear, who makes the quick turnaround after fighting last weekend and earning a twister submission, just the third in UFC history. My question is, when will Batista get a break? So this is a guy that I like a great deal. I think he is criminally underrated. I tweeted out last week, how is this dude not in the top 15? A, it shows you how good Bantamweight is, but like B, he's won four straight, the last three or first round finishes. So that to me, Merits a ranking over some of the guys that are maybe hovering in that lower third. He was supposed to face Cody Garbrandt here on the main card. Gets a big, big fight against the former champion. Regardless of where Garbrandt is at in his career and what the performances have been, he is still an established name. And people outside of the bubbles would see it and go, oh, I remember that guy. I know that guy. He's been a champ. And so a win over that guy really elevates the profile of Mario Batista. Now he gets a guy that fought last week and might be cutting weight in back-to-back -back weeks, which is horrible, a horrible idea to me. If they're going to do this, I would suggest 45, but who knows? It feels like a no-win situation for me, for Mario Batista. If he goes out and dominates, there's the automatic built-in pushback of, yeah, well, Blackshear just fought last week. He didn't prep. He cut weight twice, whatever, whatever, whatever. And if he loses, everything goes to hell, right? He had a full camp. He lost to this guy that fought last week that isn't ranked. Bah, 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 bah. Away we go. Now, make no mistake about it. Damone Blackshear is a very good fighter. We saw that last week with the twister. We saw that against uh, Luan Lacerda in his win. We saw that even in the draw with Yusuf Zalal and the loss to Farid Bashrat. He's a very good fighter. Fought very good competition on the way up. We knew he was going to be this. Anybody that followed him coming up knew he would be a effective long-term fighter in this division. I get why Mario Batista would take this fight and stay on the card, make the effort that you've put through in training camp worth something. You don't want to just squander it. You don't want to just lose that, that time that you put in. And wins are always important. And if he gets one on Saturday, if he stays on the card and he gets another victory, runs this winning streak to five, I hope he gets a bigger opportunity because I think he's earned it. And I think his skills will show that he's capable of being a top 15 fighter in the best division in the UFC. That's it for the program. As always, check out the boys at One Bone, at One Bone Brand on Twitter and Instagram, onebonebrand.com for all your apparel needs, ESK20 at checkout. Shouts to Sam, shouts to Adam. Rocking the high-low. It is my favorite shirt that I have in the collection. It is so comfortable. It is wildly hot out here in Abbotsford right now, but I'm feeling good because I'm looking good and I appreciate it. 
Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. All the stuff goes up. That is the easiest place to get everything I put out throughout a week is to follow one of those channels or both if you are so inclined. The other thing you can do is follow the Substack newsletter, Keyboard Kimura, spencerkite.substack.com. You can subscribe for free for five bucks a month or for 50 bucks for the year. Any way that you subscribe, I greatly appreciate it. It it just means the world to me to be able to put out content that people enjoy, that people consume, that people learn from, gain, gain understanding and knowledge and whatever from. Thank you all for tuning in. As I said off the top, I appreciate you bearing with me last week when I wasn't feeling up to doing this. I'm up for doing it this week. I will be back throughout the week. 10 things on Thursday. Double dip on Friday with the Punch Drunk Predictions and the Betting Show. Going to do the 10 things we learned on Saturday as I'm recapping the fights and watching the fights. It's UFC 292 Fight Week, baby, and we're ready to go. Love you. Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. We'll talk to you tomorrow.